think sometimes internet creators worry too much about capturing every little bit of value that they're creating. I mean, I do this with books too. I have two traditionally published books, but before that I released seven self-published eBooks on Amazon. And the amazing thing is as an independent creator, you can do both. You're not signing exclusive contracts. You know, they're like, oh, let's leave Gumroad and go to some other platform because we can pay 3% instead of 5%. Or they're like, oh, we can self-publish this ebook. We don't have to pay the publisher all this percentage and we can keep it for ourselves. I love that sort of self-reliance, but I think sometimes it really makes online creators be blind to huge opportunities to essentially leverage the media platforms of the world to spread their message. So before we begin, I must say, you did one of the smartest things that I've seen an author do in your book, Building a Second Brain, um, which was you said in your book that if you want the bonus chapter, you'll email it to people. So you essentially, yes. you, you put a lead magnet in your book. Totally. Right? Oh, yeah. I, that was essential. That was essential. It, it makes no, you know, the whole project doesn't, almost doesn't make sense, at least financially, unless you can use it to grow your audience and, you know, sell them courses and other things. So that was, that was an important part. Yeah. And I, I think about that often because I think about like lead magnets and I call them community magnets, which are basically lead magnets where you're bringing someone into a free community in exchange for their email address. And I was like, man, this Tiago guy, that's when I realized I was like, I need to get this guy on my podcast because this guy knows what's up. And so I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, we talk about business ideas here, so I'm excited to talk to you about business ideas. And I knew you were one of us when I saw when I saw you put that lead magnet in. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we've been we've been sort of orbiting in this very much the same circles. I mean, I've come across here, especially on uh, your your content on X, so many times. Uh, so this this just seems only natural. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate it, and I actually reached out to you, um, which I encourage other people to do. Like I I saw your book in a bookstore here in Miami called Books and Books. And I think I just sent you a message and I was just like a picture of of the book. And I was just like, like great book or something like that. It's just like, so, and you responded. I was like, whoa, this guy responded. And it just goes to show you that, you know, people have their DMs open a lot of the time and, it, and it's sort of worth reaching out to people and you'd be surprised who responds. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's, so many things have come into my life, both professional and just personal from that. I mean, it's kind of crazy if you think about it. We all have mostly direct messaging access to each other and to almost anyone. And we barely, we really barely use it, I feel like. That's right. And that's kind of a good segue into one of your startup ideas, which is acquiring a small business and growing it using your, your what do you've got, a few hundred thousand followers at this point. So what do you mean by that? And what type of business would you consider acquiring? Yeah, this is one of my little uh, kind of side projects, uh, at least for now. Uh, I guess I've been bitten by the uh, the bug. This is kind of like a, you know, like a trend I've, I've come across a number of times. You know, people like Cody Sanchez and uh, Michael Girdley and, and others. And, uh, you know, for the longest time, I couldn't even fathom that possibility because my one business takes up 100% of my bandwidth and more. <laughs> and I was like, how are these people like running multiple businesses? 
Um, but now I'm starting to see, you know, it's a combination of like having operators that you hire to run them or, you know, using the same team for one business or some of the same team as another or having them be mostly, you know, sort of passive businesses. I kind of get it a little more now. And what's driving it is basically, I mean, it's, it's partly a, a desire to diversify. You know, I have, I, we worked recently with a financial advisor. It was a funny story. Uh, like an independent financial advisor that charges you a flat fee for like three or four calls. And he did this comprehensive analysis of our entire financial life, like your, your total net worth and everything. And, uh, and he had the software that he used that you input like every single asset you had, every credit card, every debt, every, everything. And at the bottom of it, if you don't include the business, like just include everything else, but the business, our net worth today, my wife and I in our late thirties is a big fat, nothing. <laughs> it's like our debts, which is we, we have, we have no personal debt or credit card debt. It's just like our house, but we live in Cal you know, Southern California cancels out every other asset that we have, which essentially means that, that we're, you know, that our, the business is everything. I have all of my financial life in this one business and the way the world is going with pandemics and wars and different things like, you know, it's dangerous, it's dangerous to live that way. So I'm just interested in moving into something that is complementary or even like counter cyclical to an internet based business. Uh, you know, should the internet go down or should online education go down, I can, you know, survive basically. Yeah, you know, you want to hedge, not that you really want to hedge, but like, obviously, we hope, I think your business is only going to compound, but the hedging piece of around like, you want to hedge and di diversify basically is what you want to do. You want to, you want to earn, you want to buy something that has cash flow that is not related to your current business. Um, but that could be supercharged by the asset that you built, which is your audience. Exactly. Exactly. That's the thing too, is, is with an audience because an audience is just relationships, right? They're not single purpose. They're not single use. Um, so you could conceivably diversify away from an internet business, but using the asset of your relationship with that audience as the means of diversification. So it's not like you have to go and start over completely from scratch. Right. Um, I'm also, I've seen all these people, you know, like Kevin is speedy too, and others who are like basically getting this fire hose of attention you have as an online creator and just like plugging it into even an established business that already has operations that just needs more clients. That is a really powerful model, I think. So I think the way that I would think about it, if I were you is you've got like, you know, a few hundred thousand YouTube subscribers, 129,000 Twitter subscribers, uh, followers. It's like, you basically have this ecosystem of almost half a million, if not more of people, uh, interested in the same stuff that you're interested in productivity, you know, unlocking your potential, that sort of thing. And the thing is half a million people is a lot of people. Yeah. Um, that's a lifetime of people to sell them things. Yeah. Now the question is what, you know, what are you going to sell them? Is it books? Is it courses? Is it paid community? And then there's this whole other, what you're saying is there's this whole other area and you know, what Cody Sanchez and other people are saying, there's these boring businesses, these SMBs that your audience might want that you're today, you're not selling them that. So, totally. so my, so my question to you is, you know, Cody Sanchez talks about like laundromats and stuff, you know, like you're not going to buy a laundromat and just like start posting about it on Twitter. <laughs> 
And if oh, you that'd are, be, that'd be pretty funny. <laughs> if you are, I think you need a first brain, not a second brain. You know, you got to get that checked out. Yeah. So I, yeah. so I think, I think what, what, if you have an internet audience like yourself, like let's just jam for a second. What is a more brick and mortar or boring business that you could, you know, buy? That's what I'm trying to figure out now. I would love any ideas you have. I mean, I don't know. I have trouble with the idea of a completely boring business just because I just, I mean, even a laundromat, I'm sure is a lot of work to manage. And I have a hard time imagining like that I would even care enough about a business like that to even be willing to do that stuff. Um, so I feel like it should have s at least some aspect that I'm curious about or interested in or that will teach me something. And it would be nice if it was sort of not in internet based. I, I really think in coming years, we're going to see, we're going to see disruptions to the internet. I don't know why I have this sense, but I feel like the internet is, is in this like open free era that may be ending or maybe getting less dependable. Uh, we're, we're having like different, like the great firewall in China and different countries, like erecting different, you know, barriers and all sorts of things. So I would like something like land. You know, something that's land or that's physical and solid that could be valuable, even if, God forbid, the Internet was, you know, was turned off. Uh, but beyond that and being profitable and having cash flow, I, I'm just doing kind of a wide sweep of the possibilities. So why I think you shouldn't buy land and why I, should, I think you shouldn't buy something like real estate is because anyone could do that. But you have this unfair advantage where you've now built this audience of these people who now trust you. You have the, which is rare. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to think, okay, what could, you know, what could you do and which movement could you sort of latch onto? And have mm -hmm. you seen, have you heard of the brick, mm -hmm. the brick device? So it's actually this, I have one right here. It looks like this. So mm -hmm. literally it's a brick. So if you're listening to this on, Apple Podcasts, or this is, you know, check it out on YouTube. Um, and it's this really, really cool idea. And it's, it's a way, it's a way, it's a device for people who have smartphone addictions. Mm. Okay. So basically it removes distracting apps and their notifications from your phone. So it'll, it, it, it turns your phone into <laughs> like literally like focus mode. Um, and you can set up, you know, different modes for it. Um, you can set up these custom modes. So I have, I have a couple of them. Um, it's completely magnetic. Uh, my, my business partner uses, uses it. Jordan mix uses it. He puts it on his fridge. He just leaves it. Huh. And the way, the way it works is you, you tap the device to turn your phone into a literal brick, a brick. The way to un unbrick your phone is to get up, walk to whatever, you know, wherever the bridge, it, uh, the, the, the brick is, and then tap the brick to unlock it. So it creates this wow. physical barrier and it creates this friction. Um, How does and, it do that? Is it, is it a software? Like the, the software is disabling the phone? Yeah, I think that's how it works. And it's, I'm sure you've Same. seen people who, uh, who carry like a smartphone and a dumb phone. Yeah. Like, and I think it just makes it a lot easier to do this. So I look at this and I'm like, if I'm Tiago Forte, I'm reaching out to these guys who are like, it's really, it's really early for them. And I'm being like, how can I buy 50% of your business? Because wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't this product, the brick, be interesting for your audience? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just got one of these a few months ago, the light phone. Yeah. 
a dumb phone, uh, and my wife got one too. We've been trying it, but it's too extreme. You know, with two kids and, and needing to just do all the things that we use smartphones for, it was too much of a jump. So we've now reverted back to iPhones, but I'm still personally in search of a solution. And I like the, I like the physicality of that. I like that it's this artifact in your environment that is reminding you that you can create that, that bubble of focus. Exactly. And the thing I've noticed with the brick is if I ever go, let's say it's on my fridge, I ever, if I ever go up to the fridge, and I grab it and I unbrick my phone. Like I feel stupid doing it, you know. It, it, I'm like, oh, I check, I check Twitter or I check my, you know, I check Instagram. Like, what, what a waste of time. And so it reinforces this really good habit. And I think why the brick would be so cool for your for your audience is a lot of this stuff is stuff that you're already telling to your audience like you can live you can live this right like you would you'd probably promote the brick i mean you'd probably promote the brick regardless um yeah. so that's that's a good framework for thinking about it. it's like you know number one would my audience be into this mm-hmm. number two what's a non-obvious thing that they're that they would be into so like of course you can build a course of course you can go build a paid community of course you could sell some digital asset but like this is like a pretty non-correlated asset yeah. Uh, that's non-obvious. Yeah. And I think just like brainstorming from there. I really like this line of thinking uh, because it's true. We, so we make, we make a, it's def, not big, but a fair amount of uh, revenue from as an affiliate, but it's all either Amazon stuff, which is mostly books. Every time we recommend a book, it is other people's courses and it's um, SaaS tools, mostly productivity tools. But the problem is, is all those things are so similar and also similar to what we ourselves sell that it's like kind of a lot of noise. There's just like this barrage of courses and tools and apps that they're just constantly being faced with. Um, that, that the physicality of that would, I think you're right, would really stand out just for the fact that it's so different. I also think I saw this in my Slack today, uh, that one of our team members, has like a, a young sister who, uh, you know, she, she's, I think like 17 or 18, she came home from college and she came, she came with her friends just to like hang out at their family house. And they, they're all like sitting in the living room reading magazines. So like this guy who works for us, like walks into his living room, his family living room, childhood house and see all like these girls reading magazines, magazines It's 2024. And so he goes like, well, why are you doing this? Like what, why magazines? And, and apparently it's like the cool thing to like touch really? something physical. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. yeah we recently, yeah. um, along these lines, we recently got the, uh, we took the TV out of the, our living room. We just took it off the wall and stored it because we noticed we have a three-year-old. Our oldest is a three-year-old and he was just spending, I mean, maybe just like an hour a day all combined. But I, we started noticing behavioral issues. We noticed that it was almost like he's addicted to it. He always wanted to watch it. We noticed that we were watching it a lot and therefore modeling it. And it was a rough week or so, but it's been, it's been awesome. Like we talk to each other more. We, my wife and I have like our reading of physical books has picked up. Uh, it's really, a, really an amazing, like one time decision that then has, you know, infinite future benefits. 
Um, but so let's let's explore this. I'd love to get basically free consulting. But <laughs> um, how would you think about this? Like, like in theory, that sounds interesting for me to reach out to them. I'm sure they'd be open to a conversation. But then, like, do I straight up just like ask for a certain percentage and then offer certain things in return? Or like, what is? It's hard for me to even imagine what that conversation would look like. I think you go to them and you say, "Hey, I love the brick." I love this product. I think my audience would love it. Sure, I can be an affiliate, but there's something about being like I'm a co-owner in this product that is going to make it feel different when I promote something that you know has my stamp of approval. So I'm looking for a partnership, and I would say, you know, I'm sure that you're looking for more customers. I can help you get more customers, but I can also bring friends of mine. You know, you can bring Greg Eisenberg, you can bring Sean Pori, you can bring. You know, Justin Welsh, like people in your circle. So it's not just you; it's the multiplier effect of your like crew. And I would say, how could I own thirty to fifty percent of your business? What would like? Just, Why that range? Why? What is? What is it about thirty to fifty? I think that you want them to, you want the team to have the majority of the business. At the same time, if you're going to be a partner in this business, and when I say partner, I don't mean just like. Someone who's going to be allowed, like a co-founder creator. Like my prediction is, there's a lot of co-founder creators that are just going to like tweet about a business once and then forget about it. Like, no, you're going to actually be there. You're going to, you know, you might have product product feedback that you can give that might be really relevant. You know, you might write another book and you might include it in that book. Um, things like that that are super super valuable to someone like that. And I think that sure, could you own two percent? Like, yeah, but if you own two percent, I'd imagine it's not that interesting. And I'd imagine something like the brick is probably doing like it's probably it, it probably has product market fit with a very small group of people like me and my partner Jordan, hmm. but probably has, if I had to guess, less than two million dollars of revenue. Hmm. And so it's early enough that you probably can own a big chunk of the business. And they they might say like yeah you can own fifty percent of thirty percent of this but I want a million dollars, in which case you say no problem, no problem, you you get their financials you get their vision um, and then you raise that money privately if you mm -hmm. don't want to invest so you're not putting any of your own money you're actually going and raising from because now you have the deal right so now you go to someone like me let's say and you say. Mm -hmm. Hey Greg, I found this amazing company. It's perfect for my audience. Uh, the business is—we're going to run it as a as a profitable business, and there's going to be dividends every year. Mm -hmm. And you model it out. You know, would you be willing to give me half a million dollars? And could you find someone else to give me half a million dollars mm -hmm. at this valuation? So now you have yeah. a deal. So you're you're connecting, and I'm sure people in your network would be willing to back you because now all of a sudden you're creating a lot of value because you're going to be promoting it. You have this great business that aligns with it. Um, and so you're also creating value. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I like that idea. But now, so these investors, uh, they would have themselves now equity proportional to how much they invest, right? Yeah. So the way you would structure it is, and we're getting into the details, but like, I think <laughs> this might be interesting for people, honestly, yeah. um, is you would, 
you would, you know, let's say they wanted a million dollars for 30% of the business and all the advisory stuff that you're going to give, you have to come up with a deal with your, your investors. Let's say I'm the investor where you say like, okay, of my 30%, I'm going to give 5% to Greg Mm -hmm. because he's putting in the actual capital. Mm -hmm. So that's my deal with you. So some minority share. And then I, I could also put in some money, right? Just to have skin in the game. Uh, but then I I think you should, I honestly, I think you should like, I think the creator should put, that's another thing. I think creators should put money into the businesses that they're partnering with. Fascinating. Fascinating. This is, this is genuinely interesting, man. And very timely. In fact, I I was just, uh, last week I was exploring uh, a deal. My first one that I ever even sort of investigated and at, at on the surface, it looks so good. So compelling. And then as soon as I, I like talked to the broker, signed an NDA, got the actual financials and it was just such a disaster. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, this is why people get paid to like find good deals. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I think this is, this is interesting for you, but it's also interesting for people who have, there's a lot of people listening to this who have products that have product market fit or a little bit of product market fit with a devout audience. And they're thinking to themselves like, how do I how do I grow this thing? I wish I could have a creator uh, help promote this. So understanding how you think about it is interesting to them too. Yeah, I, I almost want to I want to speak to those people for for a minute, like to, to to tell them what it looks like from my point of view and why I'm even exploring this. Is like it's like I spend all my time and my team spends all our time creating content and building our audience. Like that is my, my job is to add email addresses to our email list. Right. But, but I, I've kind of recently, this has been a recent realization. You know, we have like 140,000 people on our email list. We send a newsletter every Tuesday and we have 50% open rates. So we have the, the weekly attention of 70,000 people, but we have hardly anything to offer them. Right. Like I have a couple courses. I have a couple books. That's about it. And, you know, that audience will buy some of those things or not or whatever. But then we're just continuing to send them incredible free value every week, week after week after week, all year, never asking or rarely asking for anything in return. I almost feel like I'm under uh, valuing, I'm under utilizing uh, this audience uh, who's, who tells us they would like to buy things also. They're like, do you have, can you recommend this or that? And we're just like, no, sorry. We're just going to continue to send you massive amounts of free value just because we, we it's fun. <laughs> yeah, I also think that people like you are, are looking for things to write about and things to film about. So, so, you know, using the brick as an example and talking about that lifestyle and talking about the pro, you know, the pros and cons of taking, you know, 48 hours off or taking time where you're not looking at your phone. And so it, it doesn't even need to feel like you're, you know, you're, you're subtracting like a great product should subtract from like, it shouldn't feel like you're asking, you know, Gary V is famously talks about the jab, jab hook, right? Like you give value, give value, give value, and then you take. And I just don't think that in 2024, that that's relevant to me. I think mm-hmm. that, it's just jab, 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 jab. <laughs> just another jab. Like your product should be a jab. And I think that with something like the brick, some product that, spe- that is just so relevant to your audience that 
it just gives you something to talk about that's interesting to them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it makes so much sense. Like distraction is the, it's the 500, what's the expression? 500 pound, you know, elephant in the room. If you haven't figured that out and mastered that, no productivity tip or technique or framework is going to make any difference whatsoever. It's like the, it's the stepping stone to even being able to have the space to even think about your productivity. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. So I'm glad we talked about this. I want to shift gears to another space that you're interested in, which was interesting that you're talking about this, especially considering you recently removed a TV from your house, but you're interested in producing a TV show and sort of thinking to yourself, how can I get involved in the entertainment business? My question to you is, what do you know about the entertainment business, uh, the TV business? And why is it interesting to you? Why do you think there's opportunity there? Yeah, good question. It all started when uh, someone from a one of the big Hollywood agencies reached out to us. I think if it wasn't for that, I, I have no contacts or network there. I have no idea how to even get started. It was the, the possibility of someone sort of taking us by the hand there. Um, they reached out through my, my literary agent and they were interested in the, the material in my, in my two books and potentially making that into a TV show, basically. Um, one of my favorite things to do in, in like the whole world is enter new creative uh, media. I just love those, that first, it's like a frontier. It's like the wild west. You just like enter this new creative domain and you're like, you have to question all your assumptions and learn so much and really come in as like a novice with a beginner's mind. Uh, and so over the past maybe seven or eight months, I've done that just talking to different people in the industry, reading articles, watching things. And I still wouldn't say I have a good understanding of the industry, but I have enough understanding to know that it would be so powerful from the perspective of spreading an idea. I think that's what I'm most interested in. Like when you look at what are the highest leverage ways of getting an idea into the hearts and minds of the most people in this world, TV is just, it's it. That's that TV is the medium that runs the modern world. Um, so it could also be, you know, cool financially. It could also be cool for other things. But I'm most interested in in just distilling and simplifying and making entertaining these second brain ideas, which I really, I really believe and know change people's lives if they only find out about them and learn them. So I have a saying, which is capture hearts first, then capture carts. Yes. <laughs> so I think that's what you're saying too, which is if you could spread your ideas wide and far and people resonate with them and they are connected to these ideas, then, then you're gravy, right? Then there's ton, like, you'll find products to sell. You'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll take out their wallets, but you're, what interests you about television is you think that it's a, not a hack, but a, a a great way to spread your ideas faster. And it's interesting because you come from the internet. Like to me, you're an internet content creator uh, mm -hmm. first, even though you wrote a book or books. To me, you're, you're, you know, you talk about your newsletter, like your, your core metric is emails. You, so to me, it's interesting that you think that TV, like why would you spend that time doing TV when you could spend that equal time double downing on YouTube, which is like the new TV? To me, it's both and they will leverage each other. 
those two avenues. I mean, I do this with books too. I have two traditionally published books, but before that I, I released seven self-published eBooks on Amazon and they're, they're not in any way in competition with each other. In fact, I just am constantly getting lessons from one of those routes and applying it to the other. Um, I think, I think this sometimes gets lost in the, uh, the very contentious debates around like, oh, self-publishing versus traditional publishing. There's like this ideological battle going on. And the amazing thing is as an independent creator, you can do both. You're not signing exclusive contracts ever, right? So, I mean, so, so it's interesting. Uh, you can look at this from Hollywood's perspective. Like, let's look at it from where they're sitting. We're in the midst, not only of a TV golden era, or like it's, it's widely agreed upon that this era right now is like the best TV that's ever been created, right? But we're also in the midst of streaming wars. We have all these mega corporations spending billions, like tens of billions every year, losing billions to try to gain market share, right? And you look at, you read about some of these, it's kind of insider publications you have to go to, but they're competing. Like there, there's a there's shows that, that are having like multi-way bidding wars. It's like Amazon Studios and Netflix and Hulu bidding against each other, right? And it's a lot of big names that get that much attention, but once in a while you see people who are quite early and quite small really benefiting from that. So I'm just like, okay, I would love to be, you know, the one the, the IP that these huge studios are fighting over. Uh, I'll be the talent, you know, that is the one actually on camera presenting it. And I just see no downside. I mean, there is time and energy involved, but I'll continue to do all the other stuff I do and, and run my business. Um, I, I, I do really, th I, I think sometimes internet creators worry too much about capturing every little bit of the value that they're creating. You know, they're like, oh, let's leave Gumroad and go to some other platform because we can pay, you know, 3% instead of 5%. Or they're like, oh, we can self-publish this ebook. So like, we don't have to pay the publisher, you know, you know, all this percentage and we can keep it for ourselves, which is, I love that sort of self-reliance. But I think sometimes it really makes online creators specifically just be blind to huge opportunities to essentially leverage the, the, the media platforms of the world to spread their message. At the very least, people should have an open mind, right? Like in general, like you should never be, I always, I always think I talk a lot about not raising venture capital because I had spent my twenties raising a lot of, a lot, millions and millions of dollars and I'm turned off. That being said, <laughs> last week I had a great meeting with a venture capitalist, you know, he reached out someone I respect. I'm not saying I'm taking his money, but I, I, I think it's important to not let yourself as a founder, as a creator, get attached to an identity. Oh, yes. I'm the not, I'm the not VC guy. Therefore I can't have a meeting with a VC person. I'm an internet creator. Therefore I can't have a meeting with the, you know, Hollywood producer. Totally Absolutely not. Totally. That's such a good perspective. Yeah. It depends on the situation. If you know, what's that quote? If the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I will say on the TV thing, I think that the number one reason to go on TV is to get the clips. Hmm. So like I noticed this with like people like Bill Ackman and Chamath. Mm -hmm. I was like asking myself, like, why are these guys going on CNBC, CNBC so much? Like they have to, you know, Chamath lives in Palo Alto, you know, it's like he has to like get on a plane, go 
land at like LaGuardia or Newark or JFK, try, you know, spend an hour to get into the city, uh, stay at some like midtown hotel. Um, you know, it's, it's like, he's got kids, like probably doesn't want to like do it. You know, it's freezing cold. I heard New York's like 20 degrees right now. It's like, probably doesn't want to do it, but he does it because like five minutes later, he takes that clip and he posts on Twitter and it gets millions of views or Bill Ackman does the same thing. I noticed that like, He'll go on TV and then all of a sudden, right after, clip is live. And the, and the clips, because you're on TV, because like it's a, it looks like TV, everyone knows what TV looks like, uh, there's more credibility, it spreads quicker, and it's just more viral. Totally. Totally. Yeah. There's another, another kind of bias of online creators. They, they seem to think sometimes that markers of, markers of credibility or status don't matter or are bad. That's crazy. You know, credibility and status are, are more important than they've ever been because of the flood of information. No one knows what to believe or who to trust. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think, I mean, you got to have both. You should sort of, you know, have your own platform that you control and also take advantage of the, the gatekeepers when and if they come calling. I agree, man. I agree. Okay. You have another idea on here, which I'm really interested in, which is certifying other people to teach facilitate, consult on your IP. So you've spent years building this incredible IP, multiple books, so much content, free content, YouTube, whatever, mm -hmm. created a system. And I've noticed that more and more people are doing this where they're creating a system and then like the EOS system. Are you familiar? Yep. Totally. Yeah. Um, so maybe you can tell people what EOS is or, and, and if you're familiar with the facilitators, what that, that they have, maybe you can explain that and then explain what you would do to license, uh, your business and, and your IP, sorry. And why that's interesting to you. Yes, this is so timely. This is what I'm in the midst of right now. Um, I just got back from a, uh, I'm like a B2B, which is sort of the category I would put all this in B2B education, B2B training. Um, I've just joined a mastermind, uh, and I was in Atlanta on Monday for that, but basically, so basically how did I get on this, on this track? You know, at, at one point a year or two ago, I was like, I was like, how does an idea actually reach its full potential? This is an, this is a, a question that really interests me. You know, a new idea comes into the world. Let's just pick one. Like, I don't know, agile, agile software, right? That's an idea. How does it fully capitalize and manifest like the full potential of that idea, reach everyone who could possibly benefit, give them the maximum benefit. Yes, make the most money. Of course, that's part of it. And what's so fascinating is, is, you know, the world of like online course creators, which is the one that I'm a part of, we are, are totally focused on B2C. That's our whole world. We're all about building our, our lists and our platforms and, you know, selling products and even selling a course, but that's all B2C. All of it, right, is finding the customer, acquiring the customer, selling them something. But what I'm learning, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be writing about this and creating content because I feel like this is like this big undiscovered secret, is the B2B market, I, from what I can see, has the potential to be far more lucrative, far more lucrative. It's the world of, yeah, corporate trainings, whether you deliver them yourself or you have in-house, on-staff uh, facilitators deliver them, or you certify external independent facilitators, or you license it, or you give them access to your self-paced program, like whatever it is, there's a lot of models. But these, these businesses that I'm starting to study, 
I mean, they, they just assume thousands of dollars per person. You know, every person, uh, say on a team that they're doing a training for, they're going to, they're going to estimate like three to 5,000 that they're going to make per person. Whereas as online course creators, you know, we're like afraid to charge a couple hundred bucks. <laughs> That's right. And with internet economics, like it's not uncommon to acquire an email address for one to $2. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's kind of what we were saying before we have these huge audiences, but the, we're, we're monetizing them so poorly in general. Right. And then I'm going over to the B2B world, which honestly feels like a different, like a different culture. It's like, it's like flying to a different country and like, you don't understand anything like the acronyms being used, you know, they're like, what is it? Uh, I can't remember the, the acronyms right now, but like the terminology they're using the assumptions that they make. Like, for example, in our world, bigger email list is better right? Our, the size of our email list is like our calling card. In their world, it's all about the quality of the lead. They don't care how, how many people. They'd rather have one qualified lead than a thousand random people kicking the tires. So I, I'm, I'm really having to like sort of compare and contrast these two different mindsets and learn how to operate in both of them. But the, the, the purpose of the whole thing is just basically, I mean, what I really want is my ideas to become part of culture to become part of organizations, become part of companies, be part of schools, be taught to kids. That's just my, my mission. And there's no other way to do that besides, you know, entering the B2B markets. And EOS specifically. So I never heard of EOS up until recently. It's, it stands for entrepreneurial operating system. Mm -hmm. And it's basically, I met with a friend for dinner and he was like, I was like, how was your 2023? And he goes, well, it was completely transformed thanks to EOS. And I thought like he was talking about like a drug or something. I was like, what, do you, what is that? Is that like a, is that like a sister drug to Ozempic or something like that? Uh, and no, he's like, no, I actually hired this uh, facilitator uh, who did this workshop and he works with our company to implement EOS, which is um, basically these... It's like a framework for how to how to run a productive organization for companies, I think, under 250 employees. And he was saying that there's like so there's a sort of a licensing play there as well. So someone had created I don't I don't know the exact story, but basically someone created this um, this way of doing things. They license it out to people who uh, do consulting or run workshops and stuff like that. So I think you're onto something around people are going to create IP more license it out to and and then focus on b2b i think that's a really astute point i think that's really interesting i have an idea that i want to run by you in the in the b2b space so i had lunch with a friend of mine who works for one of the largest banks in the world and he was telling me he just got this job and he was telling me i was like how's your first week he goes well you know i've been doing training all week oh what's training like you know I don't know if you've ever worked at a, a like big corporate job, but it's I like, haven't. it's, you know, what happens is, you, you know, you, on day one or something, they make you watch a lot of videos and like slides about a bunch of different topics. Like, how do you be ethical? And like, oh, you can't give like a contract to your buddy or something. And it's like a video explaining it. And there's mm -hmm. sexual harassment, things like that. The problem with it is people just skip through the trainings. Mm -hmm. They're actually not going through it. So my idea is 
Apple Vision Pro training trainings. Mm. So you put on the Apple Vision Pro, and we're not there yet. It's not gonna. It's not ubiquitous. Apple Vision Pro isn't ubiquitous, but at some point it will be. And and maybe what you can do is actually rent it to to employees or something like mm -hmm. that. But you basically say you join, you know, Wells Fargo. Like on your first day, it's like okay, hey, like put on these glasses, and oh my, all of a sudden you're in this world where you know there's a real real ethical case, and you actually have to play it out, and it's almost like a game. And it's this real world immersion immersion and you do it with other people too. It's like this social thing. So like, let's say it's your first day too. You're, you're there. What do you think of this reimagining training? And, and I'll end that with training is low key, a multi-billion dollar industry. Oh yeah. Uh, you'd be, yeah. Like, especially oh, yeah. like safety, safety training and stuff like that. Oh my gosh. The money these corporations spend on training, on certification, on upskilling, on professional development. It's staggering. It's staggering. Um, I think it's interesting. Uh, I mean, definitely every everything I've learned about existing training is that it is god awful. It's like it's like a punishment. It's like torture <laughs> uh, because it's not done. It's just done to comply with some regulation or or policy or something. It's not at all uh, learner centric, right? And people are used to learner centric education now because that's the world of online content. You know, YouTube is education. It's edutainment. Uh, X is largely, you know, depending on who you follow, of course, edutainment. And so people have gotten used to such a high standard of, uh, of even educational content that you put them in front of a, you know, hour long, boring slide presentation. And they, I think, honestly struggle to even pay attention, even if they, they want to. Um, the one thing I'll say that, that will present an obstacle is from what I'm finding, the B2B world is, is years behind the B2C world. It's like, it's like at least five years. Like what is, what is peaking and trending now in the B2C world? Like today, when you go on X, let's, let's say, will begin to enter the corporate training market in like 2029, 2023, 2030. Mm, that's interesting. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think, uh, that's like really interesting because all you have to do is look at what was trending five years ago to be like, how do I productize something for that market? Exactly. Uh, yeah. So that's really exactly. interesting. Yeah. That's a yeah, huge you, you, insight. You kind of have to, you have to consciously retreat from the frontier of, of innovation. You know, like, like you, you, you go on X, I know we're both active there. Like, like go look up what was trending on X. I mean, really like five years ago you know, like 2019. To us, that will feel ancient. It'll feel so obsolete and irrelevant and not cool and not interesting. And if we started talking about it, our internet friends would be like, oh, that, we, that was, that's so passe. But then go talk to your friend in the, the court, you know, the corporation. I, I am willing to bet they've never even heard of it yet. <laughs> mm, yeah. I feel that. Does that, are you like, does that, soul suck you a little bit are you okay with that you know i am I, i'm kind of that actually suits me you know like with with even digital note-taking stuff that's a that's a technology thing i really advocate people not adopt any technology that is newer than five years anyway you know like i'm on evernote there's nothing about evernote that wasn't present in like 2010 um, and the reason is the reason for that is i don't think so there's a price to pay for being on the frontier of innovation 
you know, especially when it comes to technology, you got to deal with, you're, you're basically a beta tester. You're a guinea pig. So things are, are buggy, they're janky, they don't work right, they're really complicated and hard to learn. Um, you know, that's fine if, if you want to experiment with an interesting new tool, but for your core productivity tools, the stuff that you rely on day in and day out, those should be, those should be mature tools, I think, is my, my opinion. Is there any opportunity to be building new productivity software? You know, so many people have ideas for to-do lists or, Google, you know, Google Calendar competitors or Rome competitors. Is this too busy of a space now or is there still opportunity? I think I'm the wrong person to ask because I, like, from my point of view, I, I can't, there's nothing I'd less rather do than build software in this, in that space. <laughs> Why is Maybe because I'm just... I'm just so hyper aware of their limitations. Um, and from everything I hear when I talk to people who are doing that, it's, it's brutally competitive. You know, there's almost a, there's almost a maxim that productivity uh, tools have no moat. There's no moat. There's nothing preventing. Every, every year, every few months, there's a new hot productivity app, you know? In fact, my theory is that not only is there no moat, there's whatever you would call like the opposite of a moat. There's actually an incentive for people to leave your product why? Because the favorite moment, the favorite experience of people who use such apps is starting over with a brand new blank slate. It feels good. You know, like, like usually the longer someone has been using a note-taking app or to-do list app, the worse it is and the, and the more they hate it because it's just cruft. And so they love, this is why there's so many productivity app switchers everywhere, is moving to the new tool, you get to be like, oh, I'm leaving my old life behind and I'm a brand new person. <laughs> I heard through through the grapevine that Ali Abdal, productivity YouTuber, is working on a productivity app. I've heard that too. What, it, what advice would you give Ali? I mean, Ali's different because. <laughs> uh, I mean, is he? It's like, it's you know, my pushback is when you're building a startup, when you're building a product, you have to ask yourself, am I building something? that's New York or am I building something that's Fiji? And Fiji is, there's not a lot of competition. This is something I, I grabbed, you know, this Fiji concept from Andrew Wilkinson from Tiny. You know, there's not a lot of competition. It's sort of an island in its own world. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you could, you can be, you know, you can have your own little kingdom in Fiji. Now, New York City, you know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Those are very competitive spaces like consumer social apps, productivity apps. Uh, these are very difficult. So Ali is about to enter that space. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, hmm, I would say he's definitely more Fiji. You know, he's, I, from what I know of Ali, we've become friends over, over the past year or two. I mean, he's, he's not trying to raise VC funding, have software used by a hundred million people and like, you know, like build it to a billion dollar company or exit or anything. He's probably doing it like, like most of his other projects, which is basically it's a combination of because he's interested in it following his curiosity uh, and, and learning what he wants to learn, which by the way, he'll create all sorts of content on that will make it worth it, even if it goes nowhere. Um, and he'll do it because there is a, there, he has such a huge audience that is so bought into what he does. Even, even if only they start using the app and paying for it, it's probably worth doing. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's difficult for me to imagine him really putting the resources into it that would be needed to be like a, a massive SaaS platform. 
one thing I ask myself when I start a new project is, how do I win even if I lose? Yes, totally. So I think Ali could definitely win even if he loses. Like losing could be like a thousand people are obsessed with this product and he creates some cool content around it. Exactly. Exactly. Online creators have that are, are the best example of that because even if we utterly fail, well, that, that'll be a great piece of content about how we failed. <laughs> Before we wrap, there's two things I, I want to cover. One is you recently went on a desert retreat with your wife and you did your you did a year end review and I want to hear about that. And the last thing is I want you to leave people um, with a book recommendation. What's something they should be reading? Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Um, so year in reviews are something I am extremely passionate about. Uh, I've been doing them in some form since 2008. So about 15 years. Um, starting in 2019, I started publishing them and sharing them on my blog. Uh, and that same year, I started teaching uh, a, a virtual workshop called the Annual Review, where we take people through the process that I've that I've kind of halfway developed and halfway just borrowed from all, I mean, there's so many people now online, you know, doing it in various forms. Uh, I just think it's, it's just, I think it's so easy to let life pass you by and for the years to just pass by in a blur. Um, I feel like it's this sacred space um, that I can only do, I can do it anytime, but it's best to do at the turn of the year because there's a kind of like, there's something in the air around that time where you can really kind of like step back you know, you're not working as much, you're spending a lot of time with family, like you can really gain some perspective on what matters in life. Um, and then I just have a series of prompts that I answer journaling, you know, introspective prompts. Um, I like to collect my favorite things, like my favorite books I read, my favorite photos, my favorite trips that I've taken. And this year, uh, just a month ago was, or less than a month ago, was the first time that we, we did a dedicated trip, which I really recommend. It's, it's honestly hard to find the time to do something like this when you, especially if you have a family and stuff. Uh, and so we just did, it was like two days, you know, in the desert, a couple hours from here out by Joshua tree. And in two days, you know, when you, when you have that dedicated time, that focus, like we were saying, you can do quite a lot. And we both came away with such both appreciation and gratitude for everything that's happened over the past year. Um, and like lessons learned and wisdom gained from things that didn't go so well. Um, and then our goals and intentions, which we could like align. That was cool too. It's like, it doesn't really make much sense for my wife and I to have completely different goals and intentions that have nothing to do with each other since we're, you know, everything is, is done as a family. And so it just let us start the year off with such a level of intentionality. Like, I don't think I've felt before. A little birdie told me that you, there was, you, you know, you've had some, you know, some psychedelics in in the last, little bit were psychedelics involved in this trip and yeah so not the trip yeah yeah no i'm a i'm an open book so not that trip but about a month and a half earlier in october uh, i did my first ayahuasca ceremony uh and i have a i wrote a blog post on it as one does uh it's very detailed and like extensive i think it's like eight thousand words and that comes out in my newsletter on tuesday cool I like that. So I do share, I, it's, way, yeah. it's way too much to get into here. And it did, yeah. it, I did sort of recap some of those lessons. They kind of fed into my year end review, but I sort of am publishing them in separate pieces. I like it. All right, man. And um, how about, uh, yeah, give us your book recommendation. And I'm curious what, what you're, what you're recommending these days. You know, there's a book that I, I picked up. 
What's this one right here? It's called Signs. Mm -hmm. uh, by, it's called Signs, The Secret Language of the Universe by Laura Lynn Jackson. Um, it says it's a New York Times bestseller, uh, but I've never heard of it anywhere, online or off. Uh, I think it was. Rec I think my my wife had picked it up, and it was just sitting on our bookshelf when I when I found it. But it's basically uh, about how to notice signs that the universe is trying to tell you. And you know, I love books that are highly left brained, and you know, have a lot of evidence and logic and all those things. But increasingly, I find over time, it's like that left side of my brain is quite well developed. Like one more book about you know reason and logic is not really going to change my life. What really does change my life, or at least my thinking is more right, right brain things, things about intuition, about the emotions, about relationships, about uh, faith and spirituality. And so like the, the, the content of this book violates every single cognitive bias. <laughs> but as long as you kind of like, I, I, I have found as long as I hold it lightly, that these are sort of, this is not the literal truth, but it's it's just a one lens through which to look at your life. Uh, it's quite, quite interesting and powerful. I'll check it out. I love it. New thing I'm doing is whenever someone recommends a book, I just basically go to Amazon, autom automatically buy it if it's someone I trust. Uh, you can't have, uh, like I just love being surrounded by books. It's just a fun feeling, especially going back to the physical thing, like having a physical book and letting it being a reminder for you is just so good. So yes, absolutely. Th thank you for that. And uh, where could folks learn more about Tiago and, and get, get more involved in your ecosystem? Yeah. Yeah. Um, building a second brain.com is uh, our website for everything related to second brain stuff. Uh, elsewhere, our main website is fortelabs.com, F-O-R-T-E-L-A-B-S. And that has the blog, the podcast, and various other things. Uh, I'd say those two, those two are, are kind of the portals. I love it. And I will say, I will admit, you have probably the best name of anyone who's come on to this podcast. <laughs> and we've done 100 plus episodes. So Tiago Forte, everyone. I love it. Um, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Greg.